0: You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabaniss. Uh Well, it's great to be together this morning, and if you are taking your kids, I guess you're on your way, taking your kids to their classes. Thanks, Caleb. Um, They can uh, jump in on the instruction part of Grace Kids. If we've not met, my name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I just want to welcome you and say thanks for being with us today. It's always a joy to um, have folks come for the first time, and uh, if that's you, I hope you will feel at home uh, here today, we look forward to meeting you and, and getting to know you and answering any questions that we can about about the church. Well, we're in like a three-week series on uh, stewardship. So last week we talked about the idea that stewardship starts with creation, that God owns everything by virtue of creation And as believers, we recognize he owns us sort of doubly, by creation, but also by redemption. And uh, so we're calling this series uh, Entrusted. Um, And uh, today I want to talk about, uh, this is today's title, I want to talk about Entrusted or Entitled. Entrusted or Entitled. We're going to look at a story from Luke chapter 12 in in just a moment. Uh, Recently, CNBC did a survey And they asked Americans this question, how much money do you need to feel rich? How much money do you need to feel rich? Now, um, the number one answer, or at least the most commonly uh, answered, it was pretty broad, they gave ranges, Uh, it was pretty broad, but the most common answer uh, was, uh, it was all about salary. Salary. So, it wasn't how much you have stored up, it's how much you make. The number one answer was I need to make $1 million a year to feel rich. 22% of Americans surveyed in this survey said I need to make a million. I don't need to have a million dollars. I don't need to be a millionaire. I need to make a million dollars annually to feel rich. Probably the most fascinating part of the survey to me was as people's income, they knew your income. as people's income went higher, the, the amount that they needed to feel rich went higher as well. So of people who made $100,000 a year, 82% of them said they would need to make at least 200000 to feel rich. So in other words, to feel like I've got everything covered, like I'm in good shape, like I've got extra. I'm I'm feeling w- good about my finances. I am wealthy. I need double what I currently make is how that how that went. Interesting. I need double what I currently have. I thought the posing of the question was really interesting. How much money do you need to feel rich? To feel rich, because to feel rich is about feeling secure. One of the hopes of wealth is that it will provide for me so that I have everything covered, I can be done with money problems, uh, and I can rest, relax, enjoy my life without the pressures of not being able to make ends meet. How much do you need to feel rich Feeling rich is maybe a number of things, but it's at least the dream of feeling secure. And in the passage we're going to read today, Jesus addresses this feeling of feeling secure, of sitting back and say, I've got what I need, and now I will enjoy my life. So let's read together. Uh, This is Luke 12. I'm going to read verses 13 uh, through 21. This is God's holy word. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now the context of this little event, because it's an interaction isn't it, it's a, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a dialogue with a guy and then it's a parable, the context is Jesus is speaking to a crowd, chapter 12 verse 1, he's speaking to a crowd and this is what's so interesting if we don't read the whole context we'll miss, is that he is telling his disciples about dangers to discipleship. So he's sort of warning them about various obstacles that will come their way. So he begins by warning them of the legalism of the Pharisees. So be careful. If you want to follow Jesus, be careful about rules-oriented religion, where following Christ just means keeping the rules apart from trusting him. And then he talks about persecution. If you're going to follow Jesus, there's going to be persecution. And he actually, right before this passage we read, encourages them that God will give you what you need to say when you're brought before authorities and have to give an answer for your faith. So be aware of the Pharisees. They teach false doctrine, legalism. Legalism will squelch your faith. Be careful and be prepared for Persecution. Because it's coming, so it can be an obstacle. Some people will tap out when persecution comes, but press on. And then in the middle of that, he gives this other topic that we probably wouldn't think of as a big obstacle like legalism or persecution. It happens because someone interrupts and asks a question. This guy makes a request. Actually, it's not really a request. It's more like a demand. Uh, He he says to Jesus, uh, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He's not saying, would you mediate a financial dispute? He's already drawn the conclusion, and he's telling Jesus, tell my brother to give me what he owes me. I want what's coming to me, and I want it now. He's interrupting Jesus in the midst of all this to say, settle my problem. Uh, That's where he is starting. Uh, It's interesting, Warren Wiersbe says of this man and so many of us, There are many people that want Jesus to solve their problems, but not to change their hearts. How true is that? Fix my problem, Jesus. You're here to sort out the problems in my life. Well, the man didn't need an arbitrator because Jesus says, who who made me an arbitrator over you? I'm not here to settle a financial dispute. He didn't need an arbitrator. What he needed was a teaching on covetousness. He needed a teaching on greed, And so Jesus uses, how would you like to be the example? Jesus says, oh yeah, that reminds me of a story I'd like to tell everybody in in light of this man's uh, brusque uh, interruption. And what he teaches us in the passage, uh, speaking to the crowd and then telling the story, is he teaches us at least two things about greed, two things about covetousness. And the first thing is that greed is dangerous. Greed is dangerous and then later he's going to show through the story that greed is foolish. Greed is dangerous and greed is foolish. So look look at what the threat is in verse 15. He said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. All covetousness. The NIV translates it, all kinds of greed. The New American Standard translates it, be on your guard against every form of greed. So the word, the Greek word can be translated covetousness, Or greed. I'm going to use them interchangeably because uh, translators uh, go different directions. But I'm probably going to use greed the most because most of us would think, ah, covetousness, that's not such a big deal or whatever. But I'm certainly not greedy. Uh, So I'm going to use greed because I think it's a more in-your-face kind of a word. And it, it goes with the original Greek, covetousness or greed. It means the desire to have more, to have It it means having the desire to have something you don't have. Biblically speaking, we say desiring something God has not provided. Greed is also about tightly grasping what we currently have, like in the story of the rich farmer. Most of us don't think that we're in danger of being greedy, uh, but look at Jesus' warning, verse 15. Take care, he says, be careful. Watch out for all kinds of covetousness and greed. And he not only says take care, but, but then he says be on your guard. It's not enough to be careful. you got to be armed and ready for it's coming for you. He's alerting the disciples. He's sounding an alarm. He's saying wake up and pay attention because I'm preparing you for this looming threat against your soul to hinder your discipleship. Be vigilant against this enemy. And if he delivers this urgent warning to a crowd of first century peasant farmers, is it possible that it's a relevant text for us in Frisco, Texas in 2022? If we're honest, we have to admit we don't live with this level of concern. I mean, even if I said today, what are the greatest spiritual threats to you? I mean, many would acknowledge something like lust, but I think few of us would acknowledge greed. We don't share Jesus' concern because when we think about the greedy person, we either think of someone who's like a billionaire, or if it's who do you know that's greedy, we, we think of the guy that lives in the bigger house in the nicer neighborhood than I live in. We think of the lady that drives the nicer, newer car, than I drive, right? We think about the family that's taking expensive vacations that we don't take. We, we think about that couple whose Instagram feed is filled with uh, expensive date nights at posh restaurants. We think that's the greedy person, but, but not me. Yet Jesus gives a universal warning. If you're a hand-to-mouth peasant farmer, watch out for greed. And he says the same to us. This is is for all of us. This is not for someone else in the room. This is for you. This isn't for someone else at work. This is for you because Jesus gives a universal warning. And and note that the threat is plural as well. Be on your guard against all covetousness. Greed is not a one-size-fits-all. There are different kinds of covetousness, different kinds of greed, it's, it's wanting more. It's desiring more to feel secure. Uh, it's desiring more to impress. It's desiring more so that I can just take a break, right, get a, get a rest like the guy in the story. Uh, but it's also clinging to what you have. We are all tempted to base our security on what we can see and feel and what the number is in the account. We all are we tend to base our security on that. And so greed, in one way, is a subtle possessiveness. It's hanging on to what we have. And, and, and we're all tempted by this. I mean, think about it. Are you generous with your things or are you clingy? Do you freely lend your things, freely give your stuff? Is your, is your attitude, it's all available, it's all available. Or are you, you stingy when it comes to meeting the needs of others? Are you hoarding funds for the future or, or desiring to hoard funds uh, without living generously towards God and towards others? I, I read a story about a, uh, a pastor that was counseling a couple. And uh, no surprise, their conflict was over money. They were fighting about money, and the wife has is, is just been accusing her husband. He is such a miser. This guy, he won't spend a nickel. He's so tight. He just saves everything, socks everything away, and it's just causing conflict. Well, the husband tells the pastor, my wife, all she does is spend. Some of you are going, hey, we've had this conversation. All she does is buy clothes, buy accessories, You know, she's always spending it on something. I mean, just always, she's got like an idol. Doesn't that sound like the idol of appearance or something like that? Just always buying stuff to make herself look good. So he's really roasting his wife in this this meeting. And the pastor says to the man, do you see that by not spending or giving away anything, by socking away every penny, you're just as selfish? He said, you are spending absolutely everything on your need to feel secure. You're spending everything on your need to feel protected and in control. His conclusion was that you both got a problem. The one who's a big spender and the one who's a big saver, if we look at the heart, both can be problems. Greed can also manifest itself in a desire for more or for better. Author Philip Reichen said, greed is a fat demon with a small mouth, and whatever you feed it is never enough. Small demon, with, I mean a fat demon with a small mouth, whatever you feed it. So the question becomes, are we content with what we have? Are you you're always thinking about and planning for more? Do the if-onlys drive you? If only we could buy a house, then I would be happy, and that's a much more difficult thing nowadays in Frisco, is it not? If I could buy a house, then I would be happy. If I had a better car, if I made more at a better job, a bigger income, if I had nicer clothes, then I would be happy. If if we had a better kitchen like, like she has, uh, then I would be happy. If we could get some upgraded furniture, if I could get some new tech supplies, a new computer, whatever your tech dreams are, if I could get that, then I'd be able to do what I need to do, I would feel better. If we, if we could get some better stuff for the kids, I wish we could afford for the kids to have all the experiences that uh, my impression is that all the kids are having, whether they are or not. That's the impression I have of everyone in Frisco. If we had the money for all of that, then I'd feel secure. So we live with these if-onlys. If only I had that. But it's really just living with discontent. We're not not, not grateful for what God has provided always wanting more, coveting what others have or what God has not provided. I read a story about two authors, Kurt Vonnegut and, and Joseph Heller, well, this a number of years ago. They were at a party together. They were uh, at a party of a billionaire. They were in this home, uh, this spread of a billionaire's home that they had been invited to. And Heller uh, is the author of uh, Catch-22 the novel Catch-22, and um, this guy who owned the house is a hedge fund manager, and it, one point they are talking about his extreme wealth, and Vonnegut makes the point to Joseph Heller. He says to him, do you know that this hedge fund manager made in one day what you've made from Catch-22, which is wildly successful, which you've made from Catch-22 in all of its sales over all time? Everything you've sold from that great novel, he made that in a day. And Heller said, yes, but I have something he will never have. Enough. Enough. See, battling greed and battling contentment is where the guy in the story fails. It's living with a real sense of enough. Not that there aren't... Emergencies, medical emergencies, I understand that there are emergencies we all have. Um, we don't have the money for something, I get that. But it's ultimately living with a heart and an attitude that says, enough. Because greed uh, springs from this false philosophy of life. Greed and covetousness is built on the idea, the lie, that my life consists in the abundance of what I possess. The lie is that possessions and uh, costly experiences and adventures and hoarding as much money as I can, that that will give me life, that will give me security, that will make me relieved, that will answer all of my fears as I look to the future, that will bring comfort. And Jesus exposes that lie by saying in verse 15, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus says, this is not what life is. It's not what life is all about. It's not what your life is all about. Commentator John Nolan, in a commentary on uh, the Gospel of Luke, wrote this. He said, greed can create a distortion about what life is because the definition of life is not found in objects but relationships. Relationships especially to God in his will. To define life in terms of things is the ultimate reversal of the creature serving the creation and ignoring the creator. This is what we were talking about last week. That to say my life consists of the things that I have is to turn everything upside down and to say that rather than worship the creator, rather than find my security my life, my joy in him, I'm going to find it in things that he has Created, or the dream of things that he has not currently provided. But Jesus makes the point that life is ultimately throughout, he makes the point that life is found in him. It's in walking in him, it's in living the truth of his word. And he's showing the danger of looking for life and security in possessions. Covetousness is dangerous because it's wanting what we don't have rather than finding our life in him and what he provides so that it's never enough. The covetous heart, the greedy heart never has enough, and that's the danger. It will never bring contentment. Uh, if, if someone makes this salary, they've got to have double that to feel really good, rich, secure, at rest. Greed is dangerous. Secondly, through the story, he makes the point that greed is foolish as well. That's the parable. He calls the man a fool, right? He calls the man a fool. It's often called the parable of the rich fool. The farmer uh, is a guy that naturally people would admire. He's done really well, but Jesus doesn't admire him. Jesus doesn't say he's a successful businessman. Jesus doesn't say he is a great entrepreneur. Uh, Jesus says he's a fool. And he's a fool because he ignores the fact that God owns everything and God provides everything. He fails to recognize that he's dependent upon God. That never comes through in the passage, and as a steward, he's called to manage all that has been entrusted to him by God. He's not entitled to do what he wants with what he has ultimately, but he is entrusted with it from God. Look at verse 16. The language in verses 16 through 18, it's very telling. It says, he told them a parable saying, the land, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Why did the land produce plentifully? Well, because God sent rain. Didn't mean he didn't work the field, the guy did, but God sent rain and God sent sun. You know what else God did? God ensured there were no locusts that year eating his crop. God protected the crop so that, which was common in that day, invaders didn't come in and steal the crop. Well, the, the farmer did work in it, but where did the farmer get the ability, the strength, and the ability to work? And likely, as was the custom, the land was given him by his family. Likely, it was an inheritance. It was just given to him, likely, to begin with. He, he, does, he denies, he doesn't recognize any of this. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't connect his success to God. God is the key to success in all of our labors. And if there's anyone that can see that, it's people that are involved in agriculture. It's harder for you and me oftentimes to see that what I have is clearly from God. But if you're dependent on rain and sun to grow your crops, if you're dependent on the weather that no storm comes in and, and affects it in some way, uh, if you are absolutely dependent on the weather, then you see how you are dependent on God, and there's no one in this room that is less dependent than that on God. We all are dependent on him, but he doesn't see that. He sees himself. Look at verse 17. Look at the number of times he uses I or my in uh, verses uh, 17 through 19. So it says uh, the land produced plentifully, and this is what he thought. He thought, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. The the repeated, it's almost clunky speech The repeated nature of I, me, and mine is the story is to make a point that he is completely blind to God's ownership. He believes he has prospered himself, secured his own future. He has the American dream. I mean, really, the American dream is verse 19. Uh, I have ample goods laid up for many years, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. That is the dream in our culture. And yet Jesus says, that's a fool who thinks that's what life is all about. I mean, if we were this guy's financial planner, we'd say, well done, awesome, congratulations. But what this guy does is he misses the fact that not only everything belongs to God, but his very life belongs to God. The breath that he is breathing, the, the beat, this heart beating, it all belongs to God. And in verse 20, after he says, I'm ready to eat, drink, relax, be merry, verse 20 says, God says, fool, this night your soul is required of you and who will get the things that you, the things that you have accumulated? You've, you've accumulated all this to have a great life. Guess what? Game over. You die now. And you cannot take any of it with you, And you didn't use it for good purposes. You didn't use it uh, in ways that God might lo- uh, call us to, but you used it solely for yourself. When John D. Rockefeller died, someone asked his accountant, how much did he leave? To which the accountant responded, uh, he left it all. <laughs> he left it all. There's the old preacher's saw that, I, I, you know, the old line, I, I never, uh, I, you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. That's commonly said. So I started a story about someone that got a hearse and u U-Haul and drove in front of a pastor's house. You kind of called them, hey, look out front, just so that they could see that, okay, I ruined that story from then on, but um, <laughs> you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Listen, the parable is not condemning planning, and it's not condemning saving. We have a seminar on the 28th of this month called Resetting Your Money Mindset, and if you come to that, they will not say, do not save, do not plan. Matter of fact, they will say, most of us probably uh, don't plan well enough, and that's why we're going to get the help, right, at this seminar. So it's, the, the parable is not about, it doesn't condemn planning, it doesn't condemn saving, it doesn't even condemn wealth. Per se, What's being condemned is the fool's thinking that all he had belonged to him and that he failed to consider how God would want God's resources used. He failed the test of stewardship is what he did. He's been, it says, rich toward himself. Verse 21, so is the one to do the same thing as the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So he's been rich toward himself, but he hasn't used his resources to help others, as God would call him to. He has, hasn't even used them to bless others or to give. There's no, there's no sight of that at all. He's lived as if, as if there is no God. He has, he has sought to position himself so that he will be secure and he can get out of ever needing to rely on God. That's the great hope, isn't it, that I would have so much, that I would be in such good shape, that I would have no needs, that I could, we would never say this as Christians, but that I don't really have to trust God for any finances anymore. That's what we want, we want to, in all of our lives, honestly, we want to get out of, I want to have that so down, I want to be so sufficient in this area, that thing, that so that I don't even have to trust God. There's a self-sufficiency. That's the danger of greed and covetousness. It's I want to arrive at the place where I no longer have to pray, give me this day my daily bread. I no longer have to depend on God. And yet, we'll never get to that place. And God will ensure that we see our need for him through some way or another. He loves us enough to ensure that. But he thinks he's insulated himself from crisis. I have ample amount for many years. It's a false security Because life is much shorter than he even anticipated. Consider that final verse. It's really the punchline. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I absolutely love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases that verse in the message. This is what it says. In the message, Peterson says, That's what happens when you fill your barn with self and not with God. That's what happens, he says, when you fill your barn with self and not with God. Stewardship is about living rich towards God, recognizing that life isn't found in the abundance of possessions, pursuing personal security by excessively hoarding funds. It's living rich towards God, meaning realizing that we own nothing and he owns everything. And very soon we will be with him. Christ offers us a freedom. This man is not really free. He thinks he's free, but he's chained to his possessions. The free person is the one who's able to take what they receive and say, God, how can I use this for my family? How can I use this for my neighbor? How can I use this? to extend the kingdom? How can I use all that you get? How can I leverage everything you've given me for your glory and for the good of others? Not to just sit stored so that I can just be merry and live a life of leisure with no concerns at all. He he didn't even say, now that my needs are met, I can get out there and start serving others. (laughs) He didn't even say that. He just said, now that my needs are met, Eat, drink, and be merry. That is my life. Real stewardship removes the burden of uh, fear of our security. Real stewardship rests in God, rests in God's provision. If he gave his son to meet our greatest need to save our soul, will he not freely give us all things? That's the promise that God has given Christ, and so he'll give us all that we Need, but but here this guy misses that he's enslaved to his possessions. He's enslaved to self sufficiency. Where I must protect myself from all uh, possibilities. I must be secure in myself. I must be at least. I must be at ease, myself. And yet, when he least expects it, his life is called. We're going to be studying our next series going to be in Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes 8, eight is a powerful verse. It, it really sort of, this is in the NIV, it, it, sort of, uh, it sort of is the heart of the book is in this verse. It says, as no one has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the time of their death. That's a lesson to learn now. You can't learn that lesson too early. Well, how do we apply this parable? I've got some extremely practical uh, next steps. Here's one. Read the rest of the chapter on your own because I didn't really talk about too much what it means to be rich towards God. But the next passage, the next section in particular, says that to be rich towards God positions you in a place to live without anxiety and worry, or at least to live without anxiety and worry dominating your life. Um, So the next, read the rest, the next section or the rest of the chapter on your own, because there Jesus explains what it looks like to live rich towards God. Secondly, here's two very practical things you can do. One is to sign up for resetting your money mindset. Part of this series is to help us see God's perspective, but I'm intentionally not giving practicals which don't fit in a sermon. This isn't a lesson on how to set up a budget and uh, how to how to invest, or how, th- th- that that's not a sermon. Uh, I'm trying to address heart issues of the, the text uh, addresses, and so sign up there. You can get some more practical help, um, and you know uh, if you're able to come. Um, it, this will also help your marriage. You know, it gave the story of the couple fighting over money. I think a financial seminar is really a marriage seminar in disguise if you're married. I don't think they'll talk about marriage at all, probably. Uh, but uh, that is a big issue for us to get on the same page. Here's another. I have a book recommendation. We have some of these books for sale out in the lobby if you'd like to get it. This book is by uh, Paul Tripp, Redeeming Money. Um, uh, <laughs> how God reveals and reorients our hearts. Couldn't read the, uh, the sub subline there. How God reveals and reorients our hearts. Uh, this is the best book that I know of that I've read, and I certainly haven't read everything. This is the best book I've read on the topic of a view of how we view our resources as biblical stewards. I, it's a great book. I think it'll I think it'll really really help you to know. One of the things we're learning in Ecclesiastes: How do we enjoy what God has provided? So we are. We are to enjoy the things God has provided for us. The key is we're just to live content with what uh, he has provided with us, not believing that our life consists of something that we don't have. And that book will help you understand how to view money, how to view what God has given you. Lastly, this is uh, th- this last point of application is a cultural one for our church. Um, let's grow in making our finances and and our heart towards our finances, that's the key. Let's grow in making topics like greed, fear of finances, covetousness, comparison. Let's grow in making that a regular conversation among us. Because the reality is how we relate to money is a huge part of how we follow Jesus. If he's putting this in the chapter of here's obstacles, then this can't be a taboo subject for us. It, this is a taboo subject. that There are couples in the church that would feel more comfortable talking about their sex life than their financial life with somebody else. Uh, because this is more revealing uh, in some way. We have all these ideas about money. Yet Jesus spoke about it a lot. And whether you are single or married, there is help for us in relationship and in community And I'm not just talking about skills. You can get someone to help you with the skills of money management. But it's more than that. Even if you are a great money manager, it does not free you from all kinds of covetous. Take care and be on guard. That's a lifelong struggle, wrestling, that we all face. You don't get over that. Um, Now, we can grow and mature, and it can become much less of a, a topic. But, uh, but it's always a topic for us, so let's make that something that we can talk about. A c- few months ago, I can't remember exactly, it was late fall, I think, I was in a meeting with somebody else, part of a accountability group, and in that, in that meeting I just was sharing that the burden of my heart was I was wrestling with an unusual sort of burden, uh, fear even. I was, it, was, it was moving towards fear, really, is what it was, about financial provi- provision in the future that I was worried about the future. I wasn't worried about today, but I was worried about the future and how much that was coming into my mind and dominating my thoughts, um, that that idea, that temptation. Just telling another person that uh, took a lot of the air out of that lie and temptation. The temptation that God's not faithful, that God won't be faithful in the future. Uh, that fear so let's let's uh, give the same discipleship emphasis to finances and to our heart let's give the same discipleship emphasis Jesus does when he says take care your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions as the passage goes on in the chapter to say God provides for the birds of the air and the flowers of the field he will care for you we're to seek his kingdom